Our scripture reading comes from the end of the book of Hebrews, the 13th chapter, reading just two verses, uh, verses 20 and 21. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's words. It's found in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bless you as the one who has sanctified us by your word, your word, which is truth. And we pray now that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see wonderful things in that word, that we might grow in our knowledge of you, that we might grow in our knowledge of ourselves, and that as a result, we might enjoy more the calling that you have given to each of us individually and to us corporately as a church and that we might honor you more along the path of life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may be seated. Well, I was glad to see Glenn's Band-Aid. At least two of us got the memo for appropriate uh, dress this morning. I gather that his was uh, an altercation that he got into with somebody. Um, Mine was much more benign than that. Well, okay, actually mine wasn't benign, but um, it was modest. Well, it's a delight to be here. I must admit, um, uh, I like the cross. I I do miss the shark a little bit. Um, And if if those of you with any history will know what that comment means. And and I also miss the uh, environmental center. Uh, We were smaller back then, but what a lovely place God gave uh, as a place for gathering for worship uh, up on the pillars and looking out over the greenery. But I must admit, he's given you a wonderful gift in this facility and uh, something to uh, always be grateful for. Well, it's a, it's a delight to be um, here with you this morning. And we're actually finishing this morning a three-part series. I think it's probably been going for a couple of years. I- I'm sure, though, that you all remember everything I said in the first two installments. Um, I've been preaching a series on the language of blessing. Uh, The first sermon in that series, let me give it to you in real short form. When God blesses us, He empowers us. The Bible says frequently that God blesses us, and the best word for bless there is empower. God empowers us to live an abundant life. Now, in Hebrew, the Bible uses the exact same word for when we bless God, as in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. So God blesses us, He empowers us, we bless God, but when we bless God, we can't possibly be empowering God to live an abundant life. It's the same word, but with a different meaning. When we bless God, we are acknowledging that all of the empowerment that we have, all of the blessings that we have come from God and not from ourselves. And so the first sermon was on the language of blessing. 
God blesses us. He empowers us to live an abundant life. And in turn, we bless God. We acknowledge that all the blessings that we have come from God. Then in the second sermon, I began by saying that there are a couple of things in much contemporary worship, uh, two things in particular that have fallen out of much contemporary worship that I personally miss. One of them is the use of doxology. And so I preached a sermon on what doxology is in terms of a word of praise from the church to God. And we talked about the Gloria and how far back the Gloria goes. We talked about the common doxology and how far back the common doxology goes. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Uh, What we sang this morning, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And how those that the, the church's use of the doxology is not a recent thing. In fact, it's the, the church tradition goes all the way back to the early centuries. And the church's tradition is rooted in the synagogue. Uh, the synagogue is rooted in the Old Testament. And so the use of doxology in worship is something that goes way back. And we don't want to sever ourselves from that. We want to maintain our connection with the church throughout the ages that has used doxology in the worship of God. So that sermon was a reflection on doxology. And our concluding sermon this morning is a reflection on benedictions. Uh, No, benedictions are not just a way of saying the service is over, you can go eat now. There's much more theology, there's much more theological significance uh, in the doxology, in, in the benediction than simply a way of concluding the sermon. I, I read Hebrews chapter 13, 20 to 21, and I will refer to that briefly, but this is not really a sermon on that text. Most of the time I preach sermons on text. This is really a topical sermon on the whole concept of benedictions and what role they play in our lives as the church. So I want to do just three things in this sermon, good Presbyterian sermon with three points. I really have, I just want to ask three questions. And the first question I want to ask is simply, what are benedictions? What are benedictions? Now, I'm a lover of words. On my smartphone, I have on my... um, uh, um, browser. I have a place to go to dictionary.com when I come across a word that I don't know. I have etymologicaldictionary.com if I want to find out where a word came from. I'm a lover of words. Words fascinate me. Um, The first thing I want to do is just look at the, the etymology or where the word benediction comes from. The English word benediction is a relatively new word. It only goes back to the 15th century. And um, it was originally used as a word that referred to grace at mealtime. It comes from Latin, bene, uh, benediction, bene as in beneficial. Um, Anybody know any Italian? Uh, Bene, what's bene mean? Good. Uh, What would the uh, diction be related to? What other word? Words. So a benediction is simply a, it's a good word. Uh, and it started as a good word to God, asking uh, in gratitude for the blessings of the meal. But it came to be used for that good word that the minister speaks 
at the conclusion of a worship service. And that's what we normally think of when we think of a benediction. So this sermon is really a reflection on that good word that the minister speaks at the conclusion of the worship service. So that, that was relatively easy. You still with me? What, it, what is a benediction? It's a good word that the minister speaks at the conclusion of the sermon. Second question. Where do benedictions come from? Why has the church traditionally concluded its worship service with benedictions? And it's a deep tradition uh, in Christian liturgy. Well, I'm going to answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, the church's tradition is rooted in the New Testament. In the apostolic letters in particular... Uh, after the gospel and acts, pretty much the rest of the New Testament are letters that the apostles wrote to the churches. And the vast majority of the apostolic letters all conclude with a good word from God through the apostle to the church. In other words, most of the New Testament epistles conclude, as do our worship services, with a benediction. For example, the apostle Paul. Romans 16.20, some of the benedictions are very short. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul concludes 1 Corinthians with a benediction. Paul concludes 2 Corinthians with a benediction. And the benediction in 2 Corinthians is the one that we're probably the most familiar with. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Probably the reason why that is the most common benediction used is because of its explicit Trinitarian nature. That is, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, it refers to God the Father, and it refers to the Holy Spirit. And so in the Christian tradition, most of the time, ministers use this benediction from 2 Corinthians 13. But Paul also concludes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon with benedictions. Virtually all of Paul's apostolic letters to the church conclude with a benediction. Then there's the book of Hebrews, which I read. And scholars are not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some think it was Paul. Uh, most do not think it was the Apostle Paul. That is a benediction that we often use at the conclusion of a worship service when the Lord's Supper is celebrated. And you can see why. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we have this benediction, which is a beautiful benediction from the author of Hebrews, perfectly suited for the use of a worship service where we have the Lord's Supper. But not only Paul and the author of Hebrews. The Apostle Peter concludes 1 Peter with a benediction. Not only Paul, the author of Hebrews, and the Apostle Peter, but the Apostle John. The Apostle John concludes first, uh, 3 John, something that I'm sure we've all read recently, Read it, lovely book. Third John, um, 
read it this afternoon and that way you can tell somebody that you read a whole book of the Bible. It's like one chapter, probably the shortest book there is. But not only does the Apostle John conclude 3 John with a benediction, he concludes the book of Revelation, which is the concluding book in the Bible, so that the last words we read when we read the Bible are a benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So why has the church traditionally, and I'm not into tradition for tradition's sake, But I do think tradition is vitally important when we use that tradition with our minds and with our hearts and when we understand the nature of the tradition and we enter into it, then it has tremendous value. Why has the church traditionally concluded its encounter with God in worship with a benediction? And part of the answer to that question is that's apostolic tradition. The church got that tradition from noticing the repeated apostolic pattern of concluding communication from the apostles to the church with benediction. And now the related question to that in figuring out where benedictions come from is, why did the apostles do that? Where did the apostles get the idea to conclude their encounter with God in the scriptures with benediction. Well, you have to keep in mind that all of the apostles were Jews. And as young Jewish boys growing up into their, what we would call adolescence and early adulthood, every Saturday, where were the apostles found? They were found in the synagogue. They were found as part of God's worshiping community in the synagogue. And they grew up with synagogue tradition. And what do we find in synagogue tradition? Well, among other things, we find the use of benediction. In fact, in the synagogue liturgy, one of the high points in the liturgy is called the 18 benedictions. A 19th was added, but we still call it the 18. Uh, So the 18 benedictions, which are kind of a blend of what we call doxology, that is a word of praise to God, and benediction, a good word from God. I'll just give you one example. Bless this year for us, Lord our God, and all its types of produce for good. Grant rain as a blessing on the face of the earth and from its goodness satisfy us. Blessing our year as the best of years. Blessed are you, Lord, who blesses the years." obviously a a benediction that comes out of an agricultural community that is dependent on rain for success. And one thing that's very interesting about this benediction is how it is a benedictory word. That is, it's a word of blessing from God down to the people, but it ends with doxology, blessed are you, Lord, who blesses the years, exactly like Hebrews. Hebrews is a ble- Hebrews chapter 13 is a word of blessing. Now may the God of peace equip you, but it ends to the glory of Jesus. And so while it's a word of blessing coming down from heaven, it concludes with the word of doxology going up to God. You can see how very Jewish the New Testament is because the apostles were Jews and they were raised in that tradition. And of course, then the question comes, why 
did the Jewish tradition in the synagogue have benediction as part of the liturgy? And by the way, the 18 benedictions in Jewish tradition are traced all the way back to the days of Ezra, about 400 B.C. So why for hundreds of years, 400 B.C. and on, does the synagogue use benediction? Well, it's because the grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents of these Jewish people were Israelites. They were Old Testament saints. And the Old Testament contains the tradition of using benediction. We'll look at just a couple. Um, Hezekiah, uh, King Hezekiah in his day, we read in Second Chronicles 30 verse 27, the priests and the Levites stood to bless the people and God heard them for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. So as far back as the days of King Hezekiah, we find the priests, our version of modern day ministers, blessing the people with benediction. But we can go further back to David's day. Second Samuel six eighteen says, when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And remember, David is not only king, but David is a priest king, priest in the order of that fellow named Melchizedek. And so David as a priest king, like the priests in Hezekiah's day, stands to bless the people. But the tradition goes on earlier than that. Moses' day. Deuteronomy chapter 33, we read, Then Moses went out and spoke all these words to Israel. We won't take the time to read the entire chapter of Deuteronomy 33, but Deuteronomy 33 is an extended benediction, an extended word of doxology. Notice at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we get this extended doxology over the people of God. But we can go behind that even to the days of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis 49, next to the last chapter in the book of Genesis. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each of, the, each of them the blessing appropriate to him. So this idea of the minister standing in front of the congregation at the end of the worship service is a deeply rooted tradition among God's people. It goes back beyond the history of the modern church to the apostolic era. It goes deeper than the apostolic era into the early synagogue roots of the New Testament church. It goes deeper than the roots of the synagogue, going back to kings like Hezekiah, further back to kings like David, further back to Moses who led people out of Egypt, further back to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Who knows that Adam didn't have the tradition. We don't have any written record of it. We have a written record of the tradition going all the way back to the early patriarchs, and it might have gone back further than that. The lack of evidence is not evidence. We just don't know what happened back then. Uh, One of the points is when the church gives up the use of the benediction at the conclusion of a worship service, they have given up a long-rooted tradition. I would submit that we have cut ourselves off from a part of the liturgical tradition of God's people going back to 2000 BC. We certainly wouldn't want to do that lightly without good reason. And frankly, I can't think of any. 
benediction, a word of blessing. Benediction is not just a way of saying the service is over. We see that it is a good word from God. Keep in mind, doxology is our blessing God. Benediction is God blessing us. And it is a deeply rooted tradition. Well, I have to admit, I'm pulling for the Steelers. Um, My brother-in-law sent an email, and it was an email, um, you know those books, you know you're a redneck when? Well, this email was, you know you're from Pittsburgh when? And if, if you're not from Pittsburgh, there were about 20 things, you wouldn't have gotten any of them. Uh, For example, you know you're from Pittsburgh if you know a still mill is not where they make stills. What do they make in a still mill? Any Pittsburghers here? They make iron. It's a steel mill. You know you're from Pittsburgh if you have to put out the fire. Uh, And it goes on and on. Well, I haven't lived in Pittsburgh since... 1976. But when I go back, that's my tradition. Uh, I must admit I also like the Jets. Uh, I used to say I'm from Joe Namath's hometown. I now say Joe Namath is from my hometown. (laughs) But when I was a little boy in grade school, Joe Namath was, you know, the high school football star. We lose something when we cut ourselves off from our roots. And our culture does that to a large extent. My wife and I both grew up in western Pennsylvania, but in 76 we moved to Philadelphia. In 79 we moved to Washington, D.C. In 88 we moved to San Diego. In 99 we moved to Orlando. We don't have that same sense of rootedness, and we're not strange. We're kind of part of the American norm. My parents have been married 65 years. They're in the house they bought their first year of marriage, about a thousand square foot home. They've never moved. My sister is in the home that she and her husband first bought when they got married. My brother is in the first home he and his wife bought when they got married. They know a sense of of tradition that is more deeply rooted And we lose something spiritually when we lose our heritage. And our heritage, part of our heritage, is in some of the simple things in worship, like the continued use of the Gloria, the continued use of the doxology, the continued use of benediction, which mystically unites us with God's people throughout time and throughout space. The use of benediction. So I've asked the question, what is a benediction and where do benedictions come from? One concluding question, why does the minister raise his hands? And notice it's not why does he raise his hand. He's not asking for permission to speak. But why does the minister raise his hands? 
And Zero Mostel knew the answer to this question from Fiddler on the Roof. And in one word, what's the answer? Tradition. It's the church tradition. There was a blog that I read that was a, a nice but pointed dialogue between an elder and the uh, pastor of a Presbyterian church. And the elder was gently challenging the minister on why the minister did not raise his hands at the time of the benediction. And the elder said that he had recently traveled through Europe and he was in high church Anglicanism, he was in low church Anglicanism, he was in Presbyterian churches in Scotland, and he said, everywhere that I go, the minister raises his hand, why have you broken with tradition? And this was a pastor who really understood and valued the role of tradition in the church. The answer is tradition. But again, where did the church get this tradition? It gets this tradition from the New Testament. Do you know the last thing that Jesus did before leaving the earth during his earthly ministry? The very last thing that he did, he raised his hands over the disciples and he blessed them. In Luke chapter 24, verse 50, Christ before ascending lifted his hands, not his hand, but his hands. He lifted his hands and he blessed his disciples. Well, why did Jesus do that? I wish I could say because he grew up in the synagogue. Uh, that may be the case that it comes from the synagogue. I just haven't been able to track that down. So whether rabbis in the synagogue lifted two hands in blessing or not, I'm not sure. But of this I am sure, priests in the Old Testament, when they blessed the people, raised two hands over them. And Jesus, as our great high priest, was simply carrying out his priestly role when he lifted his hands over the disciples and he blessed them. For example, Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22 says, Then Aaron, and Aaron was the first high priest, then Aaron lifted his hands, not his hand, but his hands, he lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. So why does the minister raise his hands? And the answer is tradition. Tradition that goes through the church, back into the New Testament, all the way back into the Aaronic priesthood in the Old Testament. But what's the significance of it? Again, we don't want tradition just for tradition's sake. We, just like in the, in the New Testament church, Paul didn't want speak, people speaking in tongues without there being an interpreter so that people understood the significance. We don't want to just have a tradition without the people of God understanding the significance. What is the significance? Let's look at a couple of texts and we'll be able to see that. Mark chapter 10 and verse 16. There was a time when parents were bringing their little children to Jesus so that Jesus could bless them. And this is what Mark tells us. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands, not hand, laying his hands on them. So when Jesus wanted to bless the little children, he laid hands on them. And there are many occurrences of the laying on of hands in the New Testament, but this, when Jesus is blessing the children and he's not putting a hand on them, he's putting hands on them. 
Well, let's go back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 39.4. We read this, Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Why so? Because Moses had laid his hands on him. You see, when Jesus laid hands on the children, blessing was actually traveling. It was traveling from Jesus to the children, from the blesser to the blessee, so that the children were actually receiving something through Jesus laying hands on them. The blessing was flowing through the laying on of hands. When Moses laid hands on Joshua, something happened. The Spirit flowed. The Spirit flowed from Moses, the blesser, to, G, uh, to Joshua, the blessee. The laying on of hands was a way in which God worked so that something traveled, blessing traveled from the person giving the blessing to the people receiving the blessing. Going back to Genesis 48, Israel, that is Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was firstborn, and he blessed Joseph. Notice one person is getting the blessing, Joseph. But Joseph has two sons. And so uh, Jacob is actually laying two hands on one person, Joseph, but in the form of his two sons, we see this same tradition. Jesus laying hands to bless. Uh, Moses laying hands to impart the Spirit. Jacob laying hands in order to bless. That is important for understanding the significance of why the minister does this. The lifting of the hands is a symbolic laying on of hands. Now, I want you to imagine... 5,000 ancient Israelites gathered before the priest. And what the priest really wants to do to bless them is to do what? To lay hands on everybody. But just think of the logistics of that. Even think of the logistics of my concluding this sermon by laying hands on everybody. It could be done, but what God's people developed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit over time was a symbolic laying on of hands. And that's why it's not, may I ask a question, nor is it, stop, may I have your attention, because in biblical tradition, when you lay hands on people, you lay two hands on them, and hence what the minister is doing when he lifts his hands is he's laying his hands on you. Just like Jesus laid hands on those children to bless them. Just like Moses laid hands on Joshua, so that he might receive the Holy Spirit. Just like Jacob laid hands on Joseph, the minister is laying hands on you. So you might think, well, our church, we're not into that kind of laying on of hands stuff. Though That's the other Christians who are into laying on of hands. Um, as pres Presbyterians, we're big on laying on of hands. And the minister does it every Sunday. He does it symbolically as he raises his hands over the congregation uh, in order to bless them. Now, let me conclude 
since I'm an Old Testament kind of guy, my favorite blessing is found in Numbers chapter 6. It's called the Aaronic Benediction because Aaron, the first chief priest, was the one who was instructed uh, to use this benediction. Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 22 and 23, reading through verse 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, you shall say to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. I call this the perfect blessing. Uh, in Hebrew, three is a number of perfection. And seven is a number of perfection as well. And if you're looking at op in an open Bible, you can see that the text I read it comes in three sections. There's a little prose introduction. Then there's the little poem, the blessing itself. And then there's a prose conclusion. And you'll notice that the word bless occurs a perfect three times. Once in the introduction, once in the blessing, and once in the conclusion. You'll notice that the Lord's name occurs three times. The Lord bless, the Lord make, the Lord lift. All indicators of the perfection of this blessing. You'll notice that the blessing itself is made up of three lines. None of this is accidental or coincidental. It's all intentional. And of course, uh, the ancient rabbi said, reading the Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through the veil. There's a lack of immediacy when we read in translation, which is why you all want to sign up and take my online Hebrew course. <laughs> but when we read the blessing in Hebrew, the first line is made up of three words. That's a perfect line. The third line is made up of seven words. That's a perfect line. The middle line is made up of five words, which is perfectly situated in between the perfect three and the perfect seven. And the first line has 15 letters in it. The second line has 20. And the third line has 25. I'd say that's perfectly symmetrical. God is a God of beauty. And he has woven beauty, perfect beauty, into this benediction. And um, I don't know, we called them Cliff's Notes when I was a kid. The, the new name is, um, what do they call them? Not that any of you young people use them, but uh, are they Spark Notes or Sparks Notes? You know, I'm sure that you all read all the books you're assigned, right? Got some smiles going over here. Uh, you read all those books. You don't use the Cliff's Notes to kind of get the gist of it. Well, I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes version of this benediction. It's found in the first word and the last word in Hebrew. First word, yivarechaka, and that means may the Lord bless you. It's all one word in Hebrew, bunch of words in English, one word in Hebrew, yivarechaka. And the last word, shalom. Shalom, not in our sense of peace, that is just the absence of war or the absence of inner turmoil, but shalom in the sense of wholeness, where nothing is broken in your lives. 
Your, your body is not broken. Your emotions are not broken. You're not broke. Your relationships are not broken. Well-being in every area, completeness in every area. May God empower you to experience shalom. And if we're honest, that's what the human heart longs for. And the reason why the human heart longs for that is because we know down deep in our DNA that that's why God created us. God did not create us for sin and misery. The children's catechism, in what condition did God create our first parents? He made them holy and He made them happy. And we know that's why we were created, to be perfectly holy to be perfectly happy, not just in the emotional sense, but in the sense of shalom. What happened to our first parents after they sinned against God instead of being happy and holy? They became sinful and miserable. Don't believe the lie that God created you for sin and misery. He did not. He created you to be happy and holy. And how God in His inscrutable will also ordained that we end up in this sinful and miserable state, I'll leave that to better theologians than I. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt it was not God's creational design for us to be in sin and misery. He didn't create you for that. Nor did Jesus redeem you for that. Jesus said, I have come not that you might be more sinful and more miserable. I have come that you might have life. That you might have shalom in all of its fullness. And what is heaven going to be like? Heaven is going to be perfect shalom. Heaven is going to be well-being. There are going to be no broken bodies, no broken relationships, no broken uh, emotions. Nobody's going to be broke. In fact, if you need some money, just go chip some of the gold off the street in front of your house and buy whatever you want. That's shalom. That's what God has created you for. That's what God has redeemed you for. And that is the, that's the Cliff's Notes version of this perfect blessing. May God empower you more and more to experience shalom as you wait for that day when you experience His shalom in all of its fullness. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for all of the wonderful gifts that you have given to us. And we bless you in particular for the marvel of the benediction. And we pray that we might avail ourselves of this deep and marvelous tradition week by week that we might receive from you the empowerment to live the life that you have created us for and that you have redeemed us for. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.